Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Human Ordinary, true stories about our relationships, our culture, and all those things that make us human. So this one time, back in 2009, Sarah Baggs was dragged along to a gig by her flatmate. There, she met Michael Williams. Now, Michael, who is a comedian, told a joke that only Sarah laughed at, and they connected almost immediately. They married in 2013. They both had a love for 90s TV shows and soon started a podcast about the show DuckTales. The podcast is them watching every episode and then discussing each of them in turn. They sometimes had guests on, but most of the time, it was just them. You ready to talk about this week's episode? Yes. (laughs) So it's called Spies in Their Eyes. Their show became pretty popular and soon they were connecting with fans all over the world. They became close with one fan in particular, an American from Portland, Oregon. And when he proposed to his girlfriend, Michael and Sarah got an invite to the wedding. They planned a trip that would also take in New Orleans, San Francisco and Disneyland. They had even managed to arrange a lunch get-together with the executive producer of the new DuckTales show who they were chuffed to learn was a fan of their podcast. But they had a three-day gap in their itinerary, which they were struggling to fill. To begin with, like the idea of going to Vegas was floated and I was like, absolutely not. wasn't on top of my list and it wasn't on Sarah's list of where we would want to go. And then the more we sort of talked about it, they were like, it's Vegas, it's crazy, it's like the Sodom and Gomorrah of our modern times. And I was like, yeah. Because there's only one Vegas in the world. And, you know, we needed to kill some time, so we thought might as well, seeing as it's just there, and we're going all the way to America. So, yeah, that's kind of how we ended up there. When we were driving in, um, there was, like, a whole big fenced-off area, and you could tell it was for a country music festival, there was signage and everything for it. And like as we we're booking in, and as we we're on the on the casino floor, people wearing cowboy boots, cowboy hats, talking about the festival. Lots of loud yahoos and stuff like that walking by. So yeah, we we're aware of it all weekend. Yeah, they checked into the Luxor, a garish Egyptian-themed hotel in the shape of a pyramid, but with a light that shone from its points skyward during the night. You know, authentic like. Then they went off to take it all in. It just seems like a place of excess. Like, you're not, it, like, weed is legal there. You're not supposed to smoke it on the street, but everywhere smells like weed. So they must be smoking it somewhere. There was like a woman stripping on the casino floor, but no one was paying attention to her because they were all gambling, which was very surreal. There were, I saw a guy on an oxygen machine smoking a cigarette while he was gambling. I'm like, you definitely shouldn't be doing that. It's like Canberra, I guess. They, it's kind of a man made city just for. The terrible things in life, but instead of politics, it's like gambling and, yeah, sex and drugs and, yeah. But Michael and Sarah weren't really into those things. 
our pursuits were a lot more nerdy. Uh, Sarah really likes Penn and Teller, so number one thing was to go see Magic, go see Penn and Teller. It was amazing. It was so cool. I, I, I am unashamedly really into magic and there was one part where they were pulling people out of the audience and and teller like grabbed someone two seats away from me and my heart was pounding because i'm like and you just saw her arm just clinging to the armrest so tight she was so scared she was gonna be asked please god don't make me go on stage that would have just been so bad this reaction of sarah's this gripping the armrest is because she experiences anxiety she has since she was little It had never been a completely debilitating thing, just something that was always in the background that would occasionally rear its head to make a life more full of worry than it needed to be. And and we got to meet them afterwards. They come out and they meet all the people waiting around to say hi to them. And um, I said to Penn, can I get a photo? And he said, it would be my honour. And I was like, oh, it would be his honour to have a photo with me. And Teller, I got a photo with him as well. And I've got a bit of a crush on him. I find him very handsome. So... It was very exciting for me. It was a great day. I really wanted to do things like, you know, like the typical Vegas things, the Bellagio fountain and like the neon graveyard or whatever they call where all, all the neon lights get retired to. Uh, but number one on my list was the Pinball Hall of Fame, the biggest collection of pinballs under one roof. So that was my thing that I wanted to do. So, yeah, we did that the day, yeah, the day of the shooting. The date? It was October 1st, 2017. We were a bit tired and we were a bit over it all. And instead of going back up to her room, we were like, should we gamble a bit? We're in Vegas. About the same time, a man on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel, right next door to the Luxor, was settling himself on a chair by his window. Around him, an assortment of 24 guns, and over 5,000 rounds of ammunition. So we played this video blackjack on this rinky-dink machine right on the edge of the casino floor. And being the idiot that I am with a a bit of a tendency towards addictive behaviour, I was like, I can definitely win. And I gave Sarah a $20. And we weren't even there that long because we sat down and Michael was like, I'm going to go to the toilet. Next door at the Mandalay Bay, two windows on the 32nd floor were shattered with a hammer. And by the time he got back, I'd lost something like $40, like, in the space of five minutes. Then, next door, the man took aim with one of his 24 guns at those attending the country music festival across the road. The only reason I noticed what happened, like, that anything was happening when it started was because the people were running past us. And I'm like, what are these dickheads doing? Like, they're disrupting the general peace of the area. And then someone said something about a shooting. And that's when I was like, holy shit, we need to get out of here. Yeah, I just remember them saying shooter and shooting. And that that really made me sort of snap into action. Yeah, she was anxiety at the ready and ready to snap into action. Michael tried to cash out the machine and there was only like... There was about $5 left in the machine when I hit cash out. It was like $4 or something. I was like, Michael, you're being ridiculous. Let's go. In my defense, you know... Vegas is such an expensive place and you don't want the house to win <laughs> all the time. Sarah quickly made the decision that the safest place for them to be was back in their room on the 13th floor. Yeah, there were so many people that the elevator doors wouldn't close because it was too heavy. So some people got out 
And I remember having like a fleeting thought, like, you know, what's going to happen to these people? But I didn't want to get out of the elevator. And that's where we heard like a little bit more that there was people shooting. And yeah, and I just remember being really stressed about getting to our room because it was stopping. It felt like at every floor. It probably wasn't stopping at every floor, but it was making heaps of stops and we were quite high up. And I was just like, come on, come on, come on. We need to get up. We need to get up. Until eventually it was just us and this really old guy with like a plastic shopping bag. I'm sure if you asked me and Sarah to draw a mugshot of this guy, it'd be two completely different people. And I'm like, what's this guy's deal? I think he had a dirty white t-shirt on and he had like a scraggly beard. Was he got in the bag? Has he got a gun in the bag? Is this guy somehow involved? Which is ridiculous because he was like this tiny diminutive old guy not a threatening looking guy and he was saying that he got on the elevator and didn't have anywhere to go he was just panicking like he, yeah he saw everyone else panicking and just jumped on the elevator to be safe and my initial feeling was to say hey buddy do you want to come crash in our room if you need a place to stay you know i want to be a good samaritan and inviting a, a perfect stranger up into our hotel room to me sounded like a good idea at the time when I explained that to Sarah... I was like, absolutely not. I would not have allowed that. When they got to their room, Michael went straight to the window for a look-see, but Sarah told him to stay away. They didn't know what was going on, and even though they suspected that there had been a relatively small shooting somewhere on the strip, it was better to be safe and stay behind the curtains. Then Sarah started thinking that their families back in Australia might hear something on the news or through social media and get worried about them. So they decided to call home. I called my mum, and I don't remember who Michael called. I remember he did definitely make a call, but I have no idea who it was to. Probably his mum. I called my mum, he called my dad, and my dad had just heard the local radio, and there was no shooting announced, so he's like, are you sure there's been a shooting? There was nothing on the news. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if Coast FM and Warble would be the one to scoop this one, Dad. I called my best friend Jamie Ann and I called um, our friend Donna and they separately messaged each other, even though they're not that close, they separately messaged each other and they were like, shit is going down in Vegas, we need to run interference and they were messaging me all night, just, are you okay? I'm getting quite emotional, sorry, because um. Yeah. Um, I just completely forgot about that. I wasn't expecting to cry. Um, But, yeah, they told me afterwards that, um, yeah, that they'd talked to each other and been like, we have to keep her distracted because we don't know what's happening. And I guess, you know, they're pretty acutely aware of my worrywart tendencies. With that done, Michael decided to check Twitter for any information about what had happened. Over the next couple of hours, he would learn that the shooting was in fact a massacre, with victims in the double figures and over 100 injured. But there was also a lot of false reports coming in too. That it was a false flag shooting, that the whole thing was staged. Bombs. They said that there'd been like a a car had been blown up or something. That it was a CIA arms deal gone wrong. Multiple shooters. They said one was in the hotel we were in, the Luxor. I remember that for a while the shooter had been identified as, you know, some Arabic name. That's who they were blaming first off. Surprise, surprise. People just flocked to Twitter to say bullshit for reasons that are not clear to me. And that bullshit 
because at the time they didn't know was bullshit, had a shitty effect on Sarah. The thought that a shooter was loose in their hotel filled her with an indescribable fear. In her mind, masked murderers were stalking the halls of the hotel. So they called their Portland friend. He worked at a bank and had received active shooter training. He told them to build a barricade. Because you want to put as many obstacles between you and them in your way. So we moved this chintzy hotel furniture in front of the door. We piled like chairs on top of it. A table. And our luggage as well. I think that was it. It was very surreal. I never in my life thought I would have to construct a barricade. I think it was right after we put together the barricade because I remember we were standing in front of the door and I kind of just looked at it and I was like, we might die. I was never really scared for us, but... I've, I've never been in fear of my life before or since. I was, I was very upset about the idea that what had happened. You know, I'm, I, I suffer from anxiety and, you know, I'm always scared of things, but I've never been so scared that I thought I was going to die They spent a lot of time lying on their bed, Michael comforting Sarah as she went through her own personal hell. And in addition to the barricade, they were taking other precautions as well. We turned all the lights off and we were staying away from the windows. We were very, very quiet. We whispered. I was very worried that someone outside was going to hear us and they were going to come and get us sort of thing. Uh, I wanted to turn on the TV... But in my mind, it was like a big deal to turn on the TV. I was like, it better be worth it. Like, there better be something on the TV to make me risk my life. And then we turned it on and literally the second the TV came on, they made an announcement over the PA. The announcement was from hotel management. They offered no information about what was going on, but told all those listening that the hotel was under lockdown. No one could leave or enter the building. So Michael and Sarah stayed on their bed in Vegas, wide awake, in the dark. At one point in the night, Michael had to go to the loo. And she's like, don't flush the toilet. Like, what? And she's like, they might hear, don't flush the toilet. It's um, pretty gross. And it wasn't great for him either, because like between you and I and everyone listening to this, my anxiety very much manifests itself in my stomach. Yeah, no, it was pretty gross for all concerned. So at one point during the night, we we hadn't had an update for a while and we heard the PA come on and it was just like crackly static and no one talking. That made her panic a lot. And my immediate thought was like, they're in the control room. And I'm like, I don't think this is diehard. I think we'll be all right. Which is... Such a, an irrational thought because do hotels have control rooms? Who are they? But whichever dickhead turned on that PA without a plan of what they were going to say and then were just like, oh, let's turn it off again. He's the one I'm angry at because it, it was so ominous. Like, what does this mean? They turned it on. They had something to tell us. They couldn't tell us. They don't want to tell us. What does it mean? You know, it was just one of those things that, like, really allowed my imagination to run wild. I was just in this heightened state of awareness, and it's exhausting. Like, having an anxiety attack is is exhausting, and it was just an extended 
panic attack, basically, and it went on forever. Uh, I just had to, you know, hold her close and tell her everything's going to be okay, and it's not something I can always do for her, which is tough. (laughs) I feel a bit bad that I couldn't be more supportive to him while he was being supportive to me, and that maybe there was pressure on him to not just allow himself to be scared and he he didn't let himself sort of grieve for what had happened until the next day when he knew that everything was done throughout the night michael had continued to check twitter for updates he kept many of them from sarah sometime in the wee hours of the morning michael saw a tweet that the las vegas sheriff would soon be making a statement on tv so they carefully tuned in. The sheriff said that contrary to unsubstantiated reports, there was only one shooter and he had taken his own life hours ago. Information that wasn't known then, but would come to light in time, was that he had fired 1,100 bullets in less than 10 minutes and would eventually claim 58 lives. It's the worst mass shooting in modern America. But it was over. We'll be right back with Michael and Sarah after this short break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. After everything was announced safe, Sarah finally let me look out the window. And yeah, the whole strip was dark. And the night before, it's so fucking bright. It's all neon. It's all lights. Like, it's not dark outside. But it was dark. Like, it it was dead outside. It was very strange. And it was just such a weird sight just to see this the city of lights with no lights on and you look down and that's where all the lights were just these police swirling lights just um they were just everywhere it's like it felt like las vegas was upside down because all the lights were at the bottom i don't know if i got much sleep maybe an hour or two maybe three but it wouldn't mean much and i remember looking on facebook or twitter and finding that the official death list had risen from i think it was like 13 to like 48 instead that still had like 10 to go after that but just saying it was in the 40s just really hit me hard just that you know we were next door to 48 people just being mowed down and that that really got to me because you know they were just country music fans and that's Sucky way to die, just going to a concert. So I went and had a shower and just, yeah, just openly, like, 
sobbed. <laughs> and when Michael cries, Michael doesn't just like shed a manly tear. Michael cries with his whole body and he sobs. So like I could hear him just sobbing in the shower. Yeah. And I, I just kind of went in there and, and comforted him because I don't know. I think I, I think I must've said something to him like, you know, we're all right. And he said something back to me about, he wasn't upset about that aspect of it. He was sad about the people, all the people who had died. In my mind, I was like, oh, yeah, like I haven't been worried about those people at all. Like I'm a bad person because I've been worried about us. And St. Michael has been like, he's crying over all the people who died, which is like no one can control how they react, I guess. But that's probably the best view to take of it. Sarah and Michael still had a couple of days left in America after the shooting, but they didn't do much. They left Las Vegas the next day for LA, where Michael had a few things he wanted to do and see, but Sarah was pretty rattled and wanted to stay in most of the time. On the way home, we went to LAX to fly out. Uh, We were kind of stuck there all day. And at one point, um, I was sitting there and I was trying to read my book, but there was a guy next to me and he was in his backpack rummaging around and I immediately was like what is he doing it shouldn't take this long to like get anything out of a backpack why is he taking so long he was rummaging around in there for like 30 seconds and Michael was like Sarah you're being quite rude you're staring at this guy and then he like pulled out an apple or some shit and I like the whole time I'd been expecting to just whip out a gun it wasn't until I saw her staring at that guy when I'm like oh this is not just fed up with this trip this is serious this yeah the world has changed in her eyes and that that sucks because I can't convince her that the world's safe anymore because it's not. <laughs> yeah. There's this story amongst a group of my mates that often gets bandied about. In it, two of our friends are on a train and get talking to this seedy old guy who says some awful things. And that's pretty much it. But the reason we bring it up is because one of our friends says the old guy wasn't wearing anything memorable, while the other swears black and blue that he was wearing a sailor's hat. The point is, we don't all experience things in the same way, and how we process events and deal with shitty things can be vastly different. And the knock-on effect from that difference can ripple and swell like a wave. I didn't really notice that it had had any sort of... um significant impact on me until about a month and a half later I was at work and we have like an annual fire drill but we as a company had only been in the building for quite a short time so I think they hadn't quite worked out the full fire evacuation procedure yet so they just had us sitting there not evacuating for about a good 10 15 minutes with just the siren blaring and I just felt the anxiety like rising and rising and rising and I'm sitting there and I'm like trying to concentrate on my work and my Apple watch was like good job keeping your heart rate up keep it going for the rest of the day and I was like fuck you Apple watch that's not what this is I'm not exercising I was barely keeping it together and I must have looked shocking because my friend Jess she looked at me she's like are you all right and I just burst into like hysterical crying like I like I could not control myself and and yes I two of my friends had to like take me away 
to the like service elevator where you couldn't really hear the sirens. So I was like kind of hiding in this space as big as a closet. Yeah. And that after that, I was like, maybe things aren't okay with me. At the same time, Michael was pouring through anything he could get his hands on about the shooting. Articles about the victims, conspiracy theories, op-eds about gun control, reports on other shootings. And as a way to process everything that had happened, he started to write in the only way that came most naturally to him. I kind of wanted all my shit worked out before I brought it on stage. So I think the therapy came from the writing of the show, not the actual performing of the show. <laughs> so I'd like to tell you a bit of a story. Uh, it's about the worst night of my life. Uh, so uh, let's start it. So that's my wife. That's me and my wife, Sarah. In the show, I wanted to focus on what we actually went through, because if I went through the actual events, like at 9.30, he broke the window and he was, yeah, you know, that's, I don't know. I don't know how to make that funny, but, you know, focusing on what it was like being in that room with Sarah, who was quietly losing her mind and, you know, trying to quote-unquote man up in that situation, how tough that was. I thought that's what how to make the story funny. And then after that, we decided we'd go to the greatest place in America. It's the Pinball Hall of Fame. It's got more pinballs in one location than anywhere else in the world. Michael's show, called The Clip Art Cowboy, is full of projections and animations and songs and sound effects. He doesn't name the shooter but instead refers to him as Coriander McFuckface. It's one of those comedy shows that doesn't try to bombard you with 60 jokes a minute. Michael is happy for you not to laugh for periods of time. He's content with letting you sit there in uncomfortable horror for a moment. Like in this bit, which starts funny and then kind of turns on a dime. And Vegas is great. Uh, uh, you know, Vegas is absolutely amazing. If you want to do anything to excess... Here, Michael shows three images of some casino chips, and some alcohol, and a stripper pole dancing. If you want to do drinking, gambling, or volunteer firefighting in the wrong uniform, <laughs> you can totally do it in Vegas. Uh, so it's all about excess. So if you wanted, you could get, say, this many guns... Uh, you could go uh, into uh, your hotel room with this many bullets. The night I saw his show, when he got to this bit, it was like he turned the whole room into a vacuum. You could probably hear it. Uh, and you could unleash uh, 1,100 rounds of ammunition at a country music concert. Uh, and that's, that's where I was. That's the, that's the worst mind of my, night of my life, the night of the Las Vegas shooting. For most of the show, Michael essentially sends up Sarah and himself. It's about how ordinary people respond to extraordinarily stressful circumstances. It's real and honest and very funny. So um, let's, let's forget about the misery and uh, let's remember this is a comedy night. <laughs> cool, back to comedy. Uh, so we... Crowded trains are very difficult for me, like people being in my space. I think a lot of it has to do with just not being able to get out, not being able to get to the fresh air. I only ever sit on the aisle at the movies now, and luckily Michael's very indulgent. He's like, yeah, I booked us the seats on the end of the row, and I'm like, thank you. 
Um, and just dealing with strangers in general, because you never know what a stranger is going to do. I, I was talking to my shrink about the other day, because I, I only just realised this, is that it's made me... Uh, it's kind of robbed me of the the like the sort of treasured part of me that I was like, if I see something bad happen, I will intervene. I'll be a good person and I'll stop a bad person hurting a good person. Do you think you've been put in those situations before, Vegas? Yeah, like yeah. there's been times where people have said like racist things on the train and I've kind of been like fuck off or I've sort of moved between you know just little things and now I just don't know because creepy dudes do terrible things and now I'm too scared to do anything because I don't know what these guys will do that's the worst thing by far to come out of this Sarah has been seeing a psychologist off and on for the past couple of years more recently a lot more on than off she says that since Vegas her everyday anxieties are more intense. But when something horrible happens, like the murder of Eurydice Dixon, a young Melbourne comedian in 2018, these are the worst days of her life. But along with these anxieties is a feeling of guilt. It feels like a, an unearned reaction. It feels like an unwarranted and unmerited reaction. Like, if I had been at the festival... I'd be like, okay, you know, I deserve to feel this anxiety. The fact that I was safely tucked up in my hotel room. You know that feeling when you have um, when you have a nightmare and it's so scary and then you wake up and you try to explain to someone why you were so scared and in the telling it doesn't sound scary at all? It's very much like that. It just, it's just, it feels ridiculous to me sometimes because I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Just these two rural Australians trying to build a barricade in a three-star hotel room. It looked like if, if a, a very poor high school had to put on a, a two-man version of Les Miserables. <laughs> I think it's acceptable because I went through it. Um, it's my, my story. I own the story. Um, if I was telling the story of the people down there... I don't think it would have been earned. You know, there is that fine line of is, is is it exploitative? And I tried to walk that as best I could. I don't think I crossed the line at any point because I stuck to my story, yeah. One of the things that the writing pros tell you is that stories hinge on drama and tension. 12 Angry Men isn't much of a tale, if they go back in the jurors' room and all write down guilty straight away. You need the disagreements, the uncertain outcomes. So when I first heard about Sarah and Michael, I thought that there'd be massive tension around his comedy show. I thought I would be able to tell the story of a couple at loggerheads over the differences. But real life doesn't star Henry Fonda. More often than not, real life is even better. I was a bit apprehensive at first because I, I felt like it would force me to relive it and I, I was a bit worried about the toll it would take on me um, and I think I did say to him very early in the piece, like, you know, I might watch it once and then that's it. And You know, that's fair enough. I, <laughs> if somebody put a, a, a show on about the worst night of my life, maybe I wouldn't want to see it that often either. As it turned out, 
it was okay. I I think he handled it really well, very artfully. It's hard for me to say this without sounding like I'm bragging about my husband, but I thought it was like a very, I guess, a kind of brave thing to do. I sort of thought that this was what he needed to do. Like this was his catharsis. Like I don't think we've ever properly debriefed about how he felt about the whole thing and, and his feelings in the aftermath, maybe because he felt he didn't have to. But I, I sort of figured that this was this is what he needed to do. And even though it might be hard for me, I I was happy to support him in doing it because it wasn't about me. It was about him. The truth of it is that rather than being a wedge that drove this couple apart, the difference in how they responded helps keep them together. Sarah dealt with Vegas through emotion and fear, and Michael was there to hold her and try to make her feel safe. And when they got back home, and Michael needed to process what had happened through lampooning their humanity on the stage, Sarah was in the audience, laughing along with everyone else. I'm very lucky that Michael is a is a different personality type to me and that we complement each other so well because if we both had reacted like me, we'd never do anything. And I think that's the difference between her and me. Like When she asks what happens when you trust the world, I think the answer that comes back to her is it's going to go bad. Uh, where I think that the world's a big safety net and it's going to catch you most of the time because people are inherently good. But yeah, I can understand Sarah standing back at that same night going, you can't trust anybody for anything. You cannot look at a group of people and know that no one's going to hurt you. And that's fair enough, I guess. Thanks to Sarah Baggs and Michael Williams for sharing their story. Please check out their podcast, Sarah and Michael Save Christmas, where they chat about Christmas specials of sometimes obscure TV shows. They often have local comedians on, and it's pretty entertaining. Thanks also for this story to Declan Fay. Janet McLeod, James Milsom, Layla Brook, and the Human Ordinary team for their advice and suggestions. Original music for this story was by Kent Sutherland, and additional tracks were taken from purpleplanet.com. And finally, after a lot of thought and talking with my family, this will be the last Human Ordinary episode for the foreseeable future. Fortunately, and something that I'm really very thankful for, working on this show has opened a lot of doors for me. And I'm finding myself too busy to commit the energy and the time that I think this show needs. It's been really amazing and incredible having something I started making on my smartphone find listeners all over the world. Thanks for listening and for caring. The show would not have been possible without the untiring support of Layla Brooke. It's been four years of her picking up the slack with the kids and spending nights alone on the couch while I sit in the study with headphones on, cursing at editing software. Thanks, Layla. Human Ordinary is produced in Melbourne and Sydney by Cinnamon Nippard, May Jasper, Mick Cavazzini, and me, Sam Loy. Special thanks to Claire Tonti at Planet Broadcasting and Guy Scott Wilson at ACAST. Our artwork is by Fergal Quigley, and our theme music is by The Contortionist Handbook. To keep up to date with what's going on with the show, head to the website humanordinary.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Anyway, thanks for listening. 
really. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.